Thank you, David. Uh, I, I, for one, and I know I'm not alone in this, I've really been enjoying Carrie's class, and I, I like the format that he's been using, and, and much like the book of Romans, how uh, it, it just logically builds on itself. I think Carrie has done a good job of that with his classes, and, I, and I'm going to try to stick to that, that same format. Um, when you, when you kind of go back, he has made this point time and time again, but just the general theme of what we've discussed so far is that man has sinned but God has gifted the solution to that sin. Uh, one, one way that I've kind of thought about it is those first couple of chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, really describe to us where salvation does not come from. You know, salvation does not come from man. Uh, if you think about those just absolutely powerful verses in chapter 1, verses 21 on through the end of the chapter, and how it describes the fruit of man's thinking and what man has done, man has become futile in his thoughts. He has exchanged the truth that was given to him for idols. And the end result is that he's debased. And then ultimately, when you go down to chapter 1 and verse 32, it leads to death. Death is what can be expected when you use man's logic and man's thinking. But even if you were to go on, you think about chapters 2 and chapters 3, where it talks about, well, does salvation come from the law and from Jewish nationality or from circumcision? And the answer is no. Well, does it come from Gentiles? Maybe it's not of the Jews. Maybe it's just of the Gentiles. No. The solution then, as we come to chapters 4, chapters 5, and now as we talk about chapter 6, the solution was offered through Christ. And it was last week, uh, some of those verses in chapter 5, chapter 5 and in verse 6, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, Verse 10 describes us as enemies But even though we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That is the solution. Man has sinned. There is no hope for salvation of man's own accord. It is God's gift. And that is the power of the grace that is described in the latter half of that chapter. And so I would ask the question, when you look at that, why in the world would you want to go back to that prior state? If you look at what it was Uh, or at least how it was described in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, why in the world would you want to go back to that? But that's the question that's going to be addressed in chapter 6. And uh, I'll I'll continue on with Carrie's uh, daily briefing. I I like that. If I had to sum up chapter 6 in one phrase, this is what I would say. A life of sin is wholly incompatible with the new Christian life. There is a permanent change that takes place. And you can see how the wheels might start turning if you are the reader here and you're getting to the end of chapter 5. Because chapter 5 has talked about a gift that we can barely even comprehend. When you think about the magnitude of grace and all the abundant sin that is out there, but yet in the midst of that abundant sin, in the midst of all those transgressions, there is grace that abounds even more. And so, as we start chapter 6, there's a very uh, familiar verse there, chapter 6 and in verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And this is connected right back up if you just go back up two verses. Go back up to verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. We talked about this last week. Where there is no law, how can you, how can you have an offense? If you don't know what right and wrong is, who is there to say what is right and wrong? I think that's what our society is going for today. 
If you just take away all the rules and you take away all the laws, well, then nobody can, nobody can be wrong. And who are you to say that you're right and who are you to say that I'm wrong? But it discusses that the law came in, not that people might transgress more and more, but that the knowledge of transgression might be made clear and apparent. The offenses did abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Uh, I don't know who told me to do this probably 20 years ago. Somebody told me in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6, go through, and at least in the New King James Version, underline all the much more phrases. And, and it's amazing how it's just much more, much more, much more, much more. Several times in Romans chapter 5, it, it talks about just, I think, emphasizing the magnitude of God's grace that no matter what sin or what offense abounded, grace abounded much more. The natural question then may be, if grace is so powerful, if grace is so great and beyond comprehension, well, why do we really need to worry about sin? Uh, I, I personally feel like when you look at verse 1, the question itself is somewhat rhetorical. I, I don't think that anybody is thinking, okay, well, if, if grace is so great, I can just go on you know, sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. But I do think it addresses this greater truth of, well, do we really need to be so conscious about our sins? If the law was there to make us hyper-conscious of sin, do I really need to worry about sin as much? I know that I should live a new life. I know that I should be changed and transformed as a Christian. But do I really need to worry about it? If grace is this incredible gift, and I think that's what Romans chapter 6 is there to answer is that this life of sin is a permanent death and there is a permanent change that is taking place. And so he says there in verse one, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And again, I'll just put that back up there. The next couple of verses I think really highlight that continuing in any form of sin, whether it's just a, you know, a couple of sins here or there or outright life of sin, is just completely incompatible with the new Christian life. Grace is not there so that it's just this blanket forgiveness and you can live your life any way you want to. I think Kerry did an excellent job talking about that when he was talking about the latter half of chapter 5. And he said, if you take this Calvinistic approach that man is born into total depravity, and that's how you read those verses, you also have to take, by the same token, the thought that grace is now just this blanket forgiveness that is available for all. If one is blanket and for all, the other must also be blanket and for all because that's the way that verse reads. But I think that anybody that sits down and takes a minute to really think about it will see, well, certainly that's not the case. That doesn't make sense. And that's what the author, I think, so powerfully describes here. And he's going to use these words over and over and over again. As I was reading through Romans chapter 6, I don't know that I've ever been struck by this, but it's really quite repetitive. It really talks about death and newness of life in, in several different ways, but it's just the same idea hammered over and over and over again. You died to sin. You have a new life as a new creation in Christ. You died. There's a death. There's a crucifixion. There's a permanent end, and there's a new beginning. And so as we go throughout the rest of the text this morning, look for some of those words where it talks about a death, a crucifixion, a permanent stop, and now something new, okay? Um, and really, I think this is just continuing on into what we've discussed in chapter 5, the way that it discusses the very first transgression of Adam. 
You know, if you were to, if you were to think about, uh, you know, sometimes they'll plot events on a line chart and then they'll have a little mark where there's a diversion. That sin, that very first sin was a permanent diversion. Nothing would ever be the same again. And just as that sin was permanent, when we become Christians, there is also a permanent stopping point and a diversion. We're not just kind of continuing on the same path with just maybe, oh, just trying to change a couple of things here and there. It's a complete transformation. It's completely different. And that's what I think he addresses in verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay? Uh, I'll just open this up and, and I'll ask you that. It's kind of a strange concept if you think about it. What, what does it mean when you read that? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus, and I think we kind of understand that. Okay, I, I want to be associated with Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. I want to be baptized into Jesus. What does it mean then that we were baptized into his death? And we can bring, we can bring the microphone around to you. Roger? in his resurrection and we're united in his eternal life mm -hmm. and so he what he provided that path and that salvation and we can be united in all those things and then it ties back to the scriptures where if you're united in his death and his burial and his resurrection and you fall away mm -hmm. then you're that latter state's worse than the first yeah and i know you're not covering that here but yeah that's that's kind of the way i see it no, I think, that's, I, think that's, I think that's spot on. Any, any other thoughts on that? Uh, that's, that's really right where, where my mind went, is exactly what Roger had mentioned, is that Christ provided through his death access to this gift of grace, but we still have to be the ones to access it. We still have to be the ones to do something to come in contact with that incredible gift. Because as we said before, it is not just a blanket forgiveness for all wrongdoing with nothing required. We still have to be the ones to access it. And so it says, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Verse 4 goes on, I think to even further clarify, we were buried with him through baptized into death, that just as he was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We are, we are following that same path that he already walked for us. We emulate Christ in baptism because as we are, as we are buried in baptism, we are putting to death that old man of sin and we are rising up a new creation. Just as Christ rose from the dead, there, he, he was dead. I mean, we've talked about this, I think, I think it was uh, either Leland or David. I'm not as good at Leland as at remembering things from, well, really even just a week or so ago. But <laughs> we, we, had, we, had that, we had that great sermon, and we were talking about baptism, and we were talking about how Jesus was dead. He didn't, he didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. You know, he didn't get sick for a couple of days. Jesus was dead. He died on the cross, and he was resurrected. He defeated death and came back. And just as he did that, we too can defeat death. We can defeat and we can crucify and put to death that old man and we can be raised up a new creature. Uh, you, there, there's probably lots of verses that you may be thinking about, but I always think about Ephesians chapter two. I think Ephesians chapter two uh, just, just hits on a lot of these same points 
But Ephesians chapter two and in verse one, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead, now you've been made alive. Down in verse five, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Uh, Even going back probably just a page or so in your Bible to Galatians chapter six. And this is Galatians chapter six. And really there in verse 15, he talks about this, this process that has gone by. And this is very similar in my mind to what we've seen in Romans. But in verse 15, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Reminds me a lot of what we talked about in chapter 2 and chapter 3. It is not your nationality. It is not this physical act of cutting away the flesh. It is being buried with Christ in baptism and rising up this new creation. And and what I think is also important here is that as you go on in the next couple of verses, this is not merely symbolic. Uh, Obviously, there there is a symbolic nature to what we do when we are immersed in the waters of baptism, we wash away our sins, we rise up a new creation. We are not physically being nailed to the cross. But I think it's very important that we understand this is not merely symbolic. This, this is important. This is something that we have to do. The old man of sin must be done away with for the new man to arise. Read with me in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. But we must also acknowledge that if we are not buried in baptism, then the opposite is also true. We are no longer freed from our sins. If we have not crucified that old man of sin, that old man of sin is still there. You've probably heard lots of, lots of phrases. You know, sometimes we want to we wanna bury the old man of sin, but we want to bury him really shallow. You know, we want to hang on to that old life. We don't want to make that definitive life changing, life-changing decision that it truly is. E- even for those of us, and I would point this out, even for, for those of us that, that you know, quote-unquote, grew up in the church, it's not like there's a whole lot of things that we have to leave behind, especially if you were baptized as a young person. Uh, when I was 11 years old, I did not have to leave behind a, lo- a life of alcoholism. You know, when I was 11 years old, I didn't have to go change my jobs. I didn't have to change my friends. I didn't have to do a lot of the things that individuals who come to Christ as older individuals have to do, but nonetheless, that was a seminal moment in my life where that old man of sin was crucified and done away with, never to live again. And whatever age we are, whatever state we are in, when we come to Christ, that is a change, a full transformation, period, stop. And it's not just, okay, I've got a couple of habits here and there I probably don't need to do anymore. We are completely different. We are completely different. And and, and I think we have to be reminded of this because I think that's really what this chapter is addressing. This is not just, well, you used to go to this church and now you go to this church. You know, you used to think a little bit about this, now you think a little bit differently. Complete, radical change in who you are because of who you have put on and also because of who you have put off. And if you do not put away that old man of sin, 
The new creation cannot arise. Christ talks about this. If you go back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and in verse 23. He says there, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Death is necessary. First Corinthians also talks about this, uh, uh, maybe a little bit out of the context. You know, in First Corinthians, it's talking about that new body that we are going to get. But I think that the principle still holds the same. The death must come first. In verse 36, it says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. I may just be hammering this over and over and over again, but I want us to fully grasp the concept that the death is necessary. And I think that's tough for some of us. I think that's tough for some of us because we don't have maybe a lot of just outwardly sinful habits that we have to put away when we come to Christ. And it may not feel like we have made this huge transition, but in God's eyes it is. In God's eyes, it is, and that old man of sin must be put away with. For some, I think it is a little bit more obvious because of the outward change that others will see. And I think 1 Peter really addresses that. 1 Peter chapter 4, and there in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past life, uh, lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. There are some of us that will have very radical transformations that will be, that will be obvious to those that are on the outside. We will have to leave jobs. We will have to leave friends. We will have to leave behind habits, sometimes habits that have been with us for decades and decades. And we will be very, very clearly transformed and changed to those who are outside, or at least we should be. We should be. But even for some that are not leaving behind those things, the principle of sin that is laid out in the beginning of Romans is that all have sinned, And therefore, all are under condemnation. Those that appear outwardly sin, you know, if you want to draw a parallel between the Jews and the Gentiles, you know, the Jew is sitting there thinking, okay, look, look at that Gentile out there. I could make a laundry list of all those sins, that ungodly way of thinking. The Jew is just as guilty as the Gentile because all are under sin. And the same, I think Carrie has just done a wonderful job of this. The same applies to us as well. No longer Jews and Gentiles. But whether we have lived a, you know, quote unquote, really, really good life, or whether we have, or whether we have lived the you know, most sinful of all life, all are under sin, and therefore all need this grace. And because of that, all should experience the transformation and the death that it is talking about here in Romans. As we go back to our, as we go back to our text, we go back to Romans chapter 6. Uh, I think up to this point, he has really emphasized 
that death. Certainly he's talked about the new creation, he's talked about the newness of life, but he has really emphasized the death. And I think we also need to note that we must both die to sin and also live for Christ. It is, while the death is extremely crucial and important, so also is the new life. Uh, let, let's read in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord." There, there is a wonderful balance here where both must take place. The death is absolutely crucial, but so is that new life. Uh, again, I, I keep thinking about Ephesians chapter 2. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, there at the end of that section in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, another familiar passage there. Through the law, in verse 19, died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you can read that without singing it, then, you know, you're better than I am. Because right here in my head, I'm just trying my best. Don't sing it, don't sing it, don't sing it. But, but the principle is there. The death is crucial but so also is the life. Uh, I thought about the, the image that is presented in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and you, and you may be thinking of one, and if you, if you are, please, please share it. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it talks about those vessels, and that as, as new creations, as Christians, we are these vessels for Christ. But there's two different kinds of vessels. There are vessels that are there for dishonor, and in my mind, vessels that are going to be filled with dishonorable and sinful things. And we should strive to be those vessels that are used for honorable things. But a vessel is there to be used. A vessel is not there to just sit on the shelf. Even though I know in my house, we've got plenty of vessels that sit around on the shelf. Um, and a lot of paper plates that get used. Uh, but <laughs> the principle that's brought out in 2 Timothy is that vessels are there to be used. They are there to be filled. Uh, if you look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's read those verses real quick. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now look at the application in the next verse. Flee also youthful lusts, but it doesn't stop right there. It's not just that you cleanse yourself of sin and then sit on the shelf. Not only do you cleanse yourself, but then you have to be filled with the right things. Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There may be other verses that you are thinking of, but, but I think that point is also so important that not only are we dying and, and, and are we crucifying this old man and putting him away, but we don't stop right there and say, okay, good, I've stopped all the things I shouldn't be doing anymore. But now, part of that transformation is, what does the new life look like? Now, my new life, my Christian life, is going to be marked not by the things I don't do anymore. It's going to be marked by the things that I do in the service of the master. There are a lot of people, and I've often said this, uh, you know, that 
it's frustrating, and maybe, maybe you have this. There are people in your life that it, it feels like they are so close to the Lord. And you look at them and you're like, they don't need to change anything. You know, at least to our outward mind. They don't do, you know, all the little things we want to check off on a list. They don't do all the bad things. But they're not faithful to God. But, and, and again, this is just anecdotally, but have you ever found that some of those people are the hardest ones to bring to the Lord? Because it's not just not doing stuff. Hey, Tolly's got a comment. It's not just not doing stuff. It's not just stopping the things. It's Tolly over there. Um, it, it, that's, that's what I think this chapter does such a good job of driving home is that it is not only stopping all those things, it is living a new life for Christ. And that, that life of submission is so hard for so many to accept. Tolly? I think what you're saying is they don't see the need for Christ yeah. because they feel like they're doing it already. Mm-hmm. But they're not trusting in Christ. They're trusting in themselves. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, there's the rub. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think you know, before we were younger, we were raised in the church. Um, but you know, there's, like you said, there's a transformation um, and there's, you know, one point, who are you living for? You know, when we're lo- young, I mean, we were probably living for ourselves. We were, we weren't exposed to evil. I mean, my, our parents were, you know, teaching us the right way, but we weren't really, you know, living for Christ. Obviously yeah. we were, um, so it's the same thing. It's just, you know, people in the world, they don't have those good influences, and, but they're living for themselves too. Mm-hmm. So it's, you see, I mean, yeah. we have to see the need no matter, you know, how bad or right. in quotes we think we are. We're all not, you know, we're all bad in comparison right. to Christ. All have sinned and all are under condemnation. Exactly. I, think, I think you put it, you put it very well. And that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is that it is more than just here's a list of things you're not supposed to do anymore. That is part of it. There are things that we cannot do. A life of sin is incompatible with, with grace, with the salvation that is offered to us. But it is more than just not doing things. And I think that's what this chapter brings out so well. It is dying, but also living. And as we get to the second half, verses 15 and onward, it talks about what that living is going to look like. Um, let, let's, finish this, let's finish this off real quick, verses 12 because I think verse 12 down through verse 16 really kind, of, really kind of form this bridge because it starts to introduce that idea of what does that new life look like? Yes, there are things that I can no longer do. I'm going to look different. I'm going to stop doing things. But now what do I need to start doing? Um, let's, let's read in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. So again, don't, don't. But now, what do we need to do? Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience living to righteousness? Again, I hope, you can, I hope you can see here what we've been talking about. The death and the life must be present. You are not going to allow sin to reign over you. You are not going to allow your members to be used for unrighteousness. But again, if you just stop right there, 
Something is going to fill your vessel. And I think that that's, uh, maybe if you think back to a lot of young people's classes, not just for young people, I think it's just as applicable to us today, but we talk to our young people so much. It is not just about not doing these things. It's, it's more than just don't watch this movie, don't listen to this music, don't associate with this person, don't go to these places. That's, that's great. You should not be doing those things. But also pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, spend time in the word, grow closer to God through prayer. Because if you leave this vacuum in your life, it will be filled. You remember that parable that, uh, that Jesus talks about where he says, you know, this individual was cleansed from a demon and then what happened? That house was just left beautifully swept and empty. And the demon said, that's a great home. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to bring 10 of my friends with me. That, that, that can happen to us as well if we make this concerted effort to cleanse our vessel. But then if we don't fill it with righteousness, with holiness, if we don't fill it with activities that are constantly drawing ourselves closer to our brethren and closer to God, we have this empty vessel that is just waiting to be filled by the world. And so often, Satan is going to find his way back in slowly, methodically, surgically, and just drop a little thing here, a little thing here, and a little thing here, because he's playing that long game. And eventually, he's going to get you back. And the high of your transformation is going to wear off. Does anybody remember that? When you were a new Christian, and you had said, I'm going to stop all these things, I'm going to live for Christ, and you were just, you were fired up then how do you feel a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 25 years from there? Are you still as fired up? If your vessel is just sitting there empty, it's hard to have that level of zeal. But I think that's what this chapter is talking about. Present yourselves as one who is no longer allowing sin to have dominion over you, but also you are presenting, as verse 13 says, your members as instruments of righteousness. I wanted to make this point as well. Uh, I think the, the irony uh, or maybe the deception of Satan is that sin is this life of freedom. The gospel, the Bible, it's just a bunch of rules. You know, you're constantly there with some teacher wrapping your knuckles saying, oh, can't do this, oh, can't do this, can't do this. And, and, and the appeal of the world is, listen, you don't need all those rules. You need to be free from that. Those are shackles. Those are things, Leanne's got a comment in the back. Those are things that are going to hold you back. You do not need to be under that kind of bondage. But look at the words here, and I'll get to you in just a second, Leanne. Look at the words that it uses to describe this. Do not let sin reign in your body, verse 12. Uh, verse 14, sin shall not have dominion under you. As we get to verse 16, slaves. Look about those words, reign, dominion, slaves. Sin is not a life of freedom. Sin is not a life of no rules. You are going to serve one master. And if you choose not to serve Christ, the one who died for you, who extends this grace to you, you are going to serve the other. Leanne? I just wanted to say, um, you know, that goes back to um, watch who you're friends with and watch who you, who you hang out with, just like what Tali said. But um, sometimes in life, you can be raised in the church all your life, but then you don't want to do what God says anymore because you're either, A, you're young, or um, you just feel like it's too controlling and too much for you. So you seek other options and you seek out this this um, temporary pleasure, which is sin, 
through um, through partying or whatever you do, and um, it's it's a temporary high. Mm-hmm. It's a temporary thing because in the long run, you go home, you're very lonely, you're very sad, and you're very confused. And like I told somebody one time, says, I I've had it. I can't sleep at night. I can't eat at night. I don't know what's wrong with me. I said it's because you're living in sin. Yeah, and uh, when you I, live I think in you're, sin, I think you're absolutely you, right. You cannot, I think you're absolutely you right. Function. Satan always overpromises and underdelivers. He is always going to promise this life of freedom. He's going to promise this is the solution that you've been looking for. You know, uh, but but I go back to John chapter eight. And, and it seems like a contradiction, but in John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answer, they say, well, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Okay, so Jesus said that way back in the Gospels. If you are committing sin, you are a slave of sin. The truth is what is truly going to set you free. Um, and, and I just think about this whole idea as we, as we move on into this, this latter part of the chapter when it talks about transitioning from being a slave of sin to being a, a willing slave, a bond slave, someone who says, yes, I want to enter into this of my own, of my own free will. You know, what does this new Christian life look like? Uh, I, I go back just a couple of chapters in Romans, chapter, uh, chapter 2, and in verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. This change of heart that compels someone to say, I want to be this slave of Christ. I want to enter into servitude. Jason's got a comment down here. Well, while bringing over there, I just thought about uh, I just thought about these verses back in Exodus chapter twenty-one. It's also in Deuteronomy, but those portions in the law where it talked about what a slave would need to do if they wanted to stay a slave. If you remember those Jewish slaves, uh, they had to be set free. But there was a provision in the law if you wanted to remain a slave, if you loved your master and your master's household, you could come to him and you could say, yes, I want to remain in your household. I want to become a bond slave of my own free will. Very similar to what we're talking about here. We are coming to Christ and saying, I want to be your slave. I want to be in your household. Jason? Just think of both the points you're making now and you made earlier. Think about Matthew chapter 12 and Christ says you're either for me or you're against me. Yeah. There's no neutrality. Yeah. You can't be kind of doing good uh, or kind of doing bad. You're on one side or the other and, and you're going to make a choice. And I think mm-hmm. back to your uh, earlier point around the vessel at your house not being used. There's no vessel that's not going to be used. Right. You're either going to be used for Christ's work in in his kingdom are you going to be used in satan's kingdom there's no neutrality yeah and and i I think i think you're spot on and really and and roger's got a comment back there i really i think that's what this chapter is trying to hit on it is not so much the individual that is sitting there like man grace is incredible i can do whatever i want to I, i think this chapter hits on the individual that says wow if grace is so incredible do i really have to live my life 100 for christ or can I ride that middle of the road and allow grace to just cover to cover that? Roger? When I think about uh, verse 13, 
and the term instruments. When, I'm, mm. when I think about instruments, uh, you can think about a musical instrument, but you can also think about a tool. Mm -hmm. we, are a, we should become a tool in the toolbox of Christ. Yeah. And what is more frustrating than a tool that is broken? Yeah. You know, that's not ready for service. So for Christ, the, the lukewarm is going to have to spit us out because we haven't been a tool that's ready for work. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a wonderful that's a wonderful pick because we've all experienced that. You know, what is worse than needing a very specific tool for a job and you don't have that tool? Or even worse, like Roger said, you've got that tool and it's broken. Because, like you said, the tool just being there but not being, not being serviceable doesn't do anybody any good. We've just got a few more minutes. Let's try to finish this chapter out. Um, and it really is just, I think, highlighting some of these same ideas over and over again. This is just so similar to me to what we saw in chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. You went from outside the body to inside the body. You were enemies. Now you're no, lo you're no longer enemies. And you look at this, this choice that we are making. And he says in verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as, sle as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. We we we've already said this, but that is the combination of death and life. There is a death, there is a crucifixion of the old man. My members are no longer going to be used for unrighteousness. And it even says there, unrighteousness and lawlessness that leads to more lawlessness. Uh, Jason made this point. There's no just little bit of, uh, of lawlessness. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Sin leads to more sin. There's no, let me just dip my toe into this sin here. Sin will ultimately lead to more sin. And so we stop that, but then we present our members. We say, I want to be this slave. I want to commit my life fully in service. Think about a slave. Is, is, is there an in or an out for a slave? No, you, you are a slave. You 100% belong to the master. There's, there's no weekends off. There's no holidays off. They're saying, ah, you know, I'm really just not feeling that servitude today. <laughs> it's not how slavery works. You are a slave for the master. And again, I'll just point this out. And Jason already hit on this. He, he brought up those verses in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 12, that idea we cannot have both. We are a slave to one master. Despite the magnitudes of God's grace, we are set free from a life of sin, and we willingly enter this life of righteousness. Uh, I, I want to end because I think the last couple of verses are just so powerful. Uh, it's already been brought out in, in verse 16 that one, one form of slavery leads to death. One form of slavery leads to righteousness. But I think it is just brought home in such a powerful way in verses 21 through 23. What fruit did you then have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Just think about, I think about this all the time. Individuals that have no limits whatsoever to what they can do, what they can purchase, where they can go, what kind of sin they can indulge in. Oftentimes, these are the individuals that sadly we see committing suicide. These are the individuals, these are the celebrities, these are the wealthy that end up ending their life despite the fact that they could have anything and everything this world has to offer. And he just asked the question here, 
you know, what fruit did you have from that former life? It is going to leave you empty. It, it, is, it is a black hole inside of you that will require more and more and more and then just leave you feeling emptier and emptier. And ultimately, it leads to death, not just a physical death. Unfortunately, what we see here, it can lead to a physical death on this earth, but more importantly, it leads to a spiritual death because you are not part of the master's household. But verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. What a contrast. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as one lifestyle is completely incompatible with the other, you have two outcomes that are completely at polar opposites of each other. One is slavery of sin that leads to death, that leads to emptiness, that leads to being unsatisfied and unfulfilled, and ultimately leads to an eternal separation from God. And I love the way he asked in verse 21, you know, how's that working out for you? How is that life working out for you? Do you feel good about yourself? Do you feel good about what you have waiting for you? Do you feel good about the fruit that that life is bringing forth? And, and I think that if individuals are honest with themselves, even those among us in our society that just have access to anything and everything, it is not fulfilling. I think Leanne mentioned this earlier. There, there are a series of temporary highs, small, temporary little moments of satisfaction that are fleeting. And when they're gone, they leave us feeling even emptier than we were before. But look at the contrast there. When we decide to, of our own free will, access that grace that has been provided abundantly for us, the outcome is wonderful. It's a life of fulfillment. It's a life in the master's household, knowing that we are tools for righteousness and holiness. And then ultimately, it's eternal life with him. Just a wonderful, wonderful thought. And I love the way the chapter just sums that up, describing this death and this life and then the ultimate outcome. We probably just have, have a few seconds. Any, anybody have any concluding remarks uh, before, we, before we finish up? All right. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time and attention. And uh, Carrie will hopefully be back next week, and we'll start in on Chapter 7.